Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm actually very, very excited. We have a we have an entrepreneur today that is gonna help us learn a lot on what we're talking about. You know, people are talking a lot about ride sharing and and new stuff coming up now as well with electric scooters and things like that. But today we're gonna be talking a lot about Via. So Daniel Ramad, how's how's it going? Great. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. So originally from Israel, what brought you to the U.S.? Uh, yeah, originally from Israel, I came to the U.S. Uh, for graduate school. I was uh, very interested in studying neuroscience, uh, applied to schools in the U.S., and ended up uh, getting accepted into Stanford and uh, went there uh, for school. Really cool, really cool. And before, before this, so what was what were those? Uh, what was life uh, like in in Israel, and especially with Startup Nation? You know, what's the Startup Nation that everyone is talking about? <laughs> Yeah, so I spent the first, uh, I guess, nine years uh, of post high school uh, in the Israeli military. I uh, studied physics and math as part of a program that the Israeli Defense Forces have called Talpiot, um, and then spent six years working for the Air Force, for the Israeli Air Force, de- developing avionic systems, first for F 15s and then for F 16s. Um, so I wasn't really in any direct way, I guess, part of Startup Nation while in Israel, but very much involved in the, in the technology industry. Got it. Got it. So then you come, you, do, you come to do your your uh, your studies at stanford in in what 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 i mean i'm sorry i'm i'm an ignorant and i'm sure that most of the people that are listening are wondering what the hell is neuroscience uh neuroscience you know it's just simply is a study of of the of the nervous system of the of the brain um and uh, you know I, my background uh, mentioned from the from the air force was mostly it was physics and math initially and then really working as an engineer and a product manager for several years and uh, throughout that period, I, I developed a real interest in in studying the brain and trying to understand how the brain works. So, you know, I, I thought I would give it a shot and, and try to spend a few years learning about that. I didn't have much background in biology, but I, so I had to sort of uh, teach myself and learn quite a lot of biology to catch up. But uh, I just thought that studying how the brain works is probably the most interesting thing uh, anyone could do. So I uh, went to Stanford to to try to get a bit of an education in that. Absolutely. And you got your PhD, so not bad at all. So I guess I guess from studying how the brain works, like what were your biggest lessons? 
think, you know, first of all, it's, it's intriguing. It's, it's a really interesting, uh, obviously question to study. How does the brain work? That's a, and that's a very broad question. And what you learn very quickly is that it's an incredibly complex organ and that we really don't know that much about it. Um, and even parts of it that we sort of understand, we understand very little about. And I think the, 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 the main challenge is to try to just, you know, okay, try to understand how the brain works, behavior, genetics. There's so many pieces uh, that go into it. Try to distill that into a, a specific question that in the course of a, a PhD you can ask and hopefully try to answer at least a small piece of it. And that was, I, I think, to me, the kind of the initial discovery, uh, maybe an obvious one, that uh, you know, I needed to find a question that I was really excited about. Right, right. And I'm a big believer as well that, um, and I don't know if you've heard about this, but knowledge transfer, right? So being able to apply concepts that you have learned from your time doing something else to a completely different in different industry. You know? We've seen this from Elon Musk jumping from fintech and applying some of the knowledge to space or some of that knowledge to electric cars. So in your case, what did you, let's say, learn from neuroscience that perhaps you have been applying on, let's say, now what you're doing at, at VIA? So I, I think uh, I start with, you know, what I try to do going into neuroscience, which was to try to take some of the the, the math, the, the computer science, the physics that I had learned, some of the engineering principles and see if I can apply it to try to understanding the brain, which in the end is fundamentally sort of a, an electric, electric machine or electrochemical machine. Um, and, and I think there's there's a lot of techniques that we use in science and computer science that we can obviously, uh, you know, many people are, have done this and are doing this to uh, we can bring to try to understand how the brain works. So a lot of what I, I try to do in my PhD was try to utilize some of the, the knowledge and, and uh, um, experience that I had in, in sort of engineering and, and bring it into uh, neuroscience. Uh, so we try to understand behavior and tie that into the specific electrical signals of, of certain neurons and build models, mathematical models for that. And that was, that was a great experience trying to bring that together into biology. And then from there forward, I, I think the, the key thing that you learn while doing a PhD, you know, I can't say that transportation is exactly like the brain. I, I wouldn't argue that, but one of the great things that you learn um, doing a PhD is that you can you learn how to deal with data and how to be very critical and analytical in, in thinking about data um, and in collecting it and, and organizing it. And I, I think when you think about the problem VIA is trying to solve, which inherently has a lot to do with traffic and, and traffic systems and interactions uh, between people and, 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 and road systems and traffic, um, thinking about that in a structured analytical way, thinking about how to distill a complex system like that into some simple equations, much like you could think about how do I take the, the brain and, and behavior and try to distill that into a set of simple equations and use data to do that. I, I'd say that's, uh, that's what's really transferable. Got it. Got it. And before we actually, you went to work for the show research for four years. What were you doing there? Right. So Dishal Research is a super interesting company. Uh, so, uh, you know, after I graduated uh, from my PhD, I, I, I realized I didn't want to stay in academia. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And then through some friends got introduced to Dishal Research. And it, so Dishal, some folks may be familiar with, is a very large hedge fund. And uh, it became famous uh, for being one of the first hedge funds in the world to trade using, computa using computers, um, using computational algorithms and um, was really one of the leaders in the field of quantitative trading and still is. 
Uh, and the founder of D.E. Shaw, David Shaw, uh, started another company uh, about 15 years ago or so called uh, D.E. Shaw Research, which is the company I joined. And D.E. Shaw Research, uh, it, you know, probably oversimplifying it, but if I were to say it tries to take a similar approach uh, that D.E. Shaw had uh, taken in finance and apply it to pharmaceutical drug discovery. So we were using uh, algorithms, computational techniques, and, and computers to try to discover new pharmaceutical drugs. That was sort of you know, a core mission of the company. And in particular, the, the main product there was a, a very large custom-designed supercomputer uh, that, that we were building to accelerate uh, by, by a certain class of biological simulations called molecular dynamics. So we were running these simulations called molecular dynamics that allowed us to visualize how proteins interact with drug molecules, how proteins fold, how they change their shape when, when they bind a drug molecule, and try to use those simulations to discover new drugs. And the main thing I worked on there was uh, building this, this very interesting supercomputer to try to run these simulations really quickly. Got it. So what were some of, I mean, four years there, that was quite a bit of time. So I guess, what were some of your biggest takeaways from, from this experience? So, you know, I, I say because one, Dishaw Research, I think the entire Dishaw family is just a great place to work. And uh, I there I had some fantastic colleagues, so, so it was really, really just great place to be for a while. But the project itself was just super interesting. So coming, you know, from the background that I had, which was in engineering, computer science, and then, uh, and then some biology training that I got in grad school, being able to bring that all together um, into, because so we're going back to engineering, to building these, these machines, these supercomputers, was just a really great challenge. And so, you know, I learned a lot about technology and about building these complex, uh, complex systems. I also learned a lot, you know, from, from, from David Shaw and from, from others at the company about uh, how to run a company, how to, it was, it, it was not a very big company. So just sort of over a hundred people, um, how to manage, a, how to think about managing a small company, uh, how to think a lot about recruiting. So a lot of what we do at VIA, uh, we have, you know, there are things that I and, and some colleagues of mine who've, who've come from D. Shaw learned at D. Shaw. And I, I think a lot of the philosophy around our hiring and recruiting has come from there. So it was, it was a great learning experience. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, having, <clears throat> having a corporate job, um, it's, it's, it's quite comfortable, right? So, I mean, Daniel, so why, why did you decide to, to give your notice? I mean, uh, what happened here? What was the? How did the entrepreneurial bug all of a sudden hit you one day? Yeah, you know, it was a tough decision. I, I have to say, simply because I really enjoyed what I was doing at Disha. I was, as I mentioned, a fantastic place to work. The the people there were great, and the the project was just super interesting. I think I had just always had this uh, this sort of uh, desire to start a company of my own. And uh, in particular, my co-founder, Oren Choval, who at VIA and I have been friends since the early days in the military, in Israel, in the Air Force. We worked together in the Air Force for about four years. We were on the same project. We were in the same program together, training and studying uh, before then. And um, we just, we, we always, you know, um, and at some point, the timing just kind of became right for both him and for me. And, and it was an opportunity that we didn't want to pass up. Uh, so, you know, what, what we, it wasn't easy to make that transition. So one thing that I, I remember trying to do pretty consciously, which may sound funny, is that I started telling uh, all of my friends that I was going to do this so that I would sort of create a, uh, an environment for myself where it would be very difficult to back out because it, it was a difficult thing to do. Got it. Got it. And, and they always say that ideas, they just don't happen overnight. They take, you know, some time to incubate and, 
And even though we don't know that's the case, you know, it, it just happened. So, so I guess for you guys, like, how was the the incubation process of of VIA? How did this come about? Yeah, you know, we spent about a year, I would say, Oren and I, uh, trying to come up with an idea. We we knew that we wanted to do something entrepreneurial. We wanted to start a company, uh, or at least we thought we did, and we were looking for that right idea that we could believe in and make that jump and. Oren was uh, just finishing up his PhD at the Weizmann Institute in Israel and Systems Biology. He was doing very well, looked like he could have a very promising academic career. I, I was pretty happy at the Shaw Research. And so we weren't uh, kind of desperate to find something, but we, 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 really, uh, we really wanted to. And we spent about a year brainstorming. Uh, Oren was actually uh, in Boston for a year with his advisor who had moved to Harvard uh, and, and spent a year there. And I was in New York and we were uh, taking the train up to New Haven or down to New Haven from Boston to, or to New London and meeting, kind of spending half a day uh, on weekends, uh, brainstorming different different concepts. And I have to say, we had a number of quite terrible ideas that I'm very happy uh, we didn't choose to pursue. Uh, and then at some point, Orin went back to, to Israel, to the Weizmann Institute, and, and one day he called me uh, with essentially the, you know, the idea for VIA, and he had been um, trying to get from one place to another in Israel using... A, uh, a class of transport that we have in Israel called Shirut taxis, which are basically you know, translated to, to service taxi, if you will, which is a set of uh, a fleet of vans, uh, often white, uh, that are run. They're not very techy. They're not tech enabled. They sort of run the, the, the same routes often as the bus. They're a little bit more flexible than the bus that you can get on and off anywhere. Uh, along the routes, you just sort of flag them down, you get in, you pass your cash up to the front, the driver passes back the change. And they're just a, a slightly more convenient, more agile uh, sort of bus uh, that uses these, these smaller vehicles. And Oren was trying to uh, ride in one of these, and it wasn't going very well. And it occurred to him that if he had an app that he could book a seat on on one of these vehicles and track it as it was approaching and know when it was coming that would be a much more efficient uh, way to utilize this, this system. And this system of, you know, this van-based transportation exists all over the world. If you travel in South America, whether they're colectivos or combis, matatus in Africa, malshutkas in Russia, uh, and of course all throughout uh, Asia, there are these van-based uh, systems that are, that, that are very prevalent. And, and we had them in Israel as well. And so this, this experience that Oren had, I think he was, you know, he was waiting for the van. The van kept showing up. It was, it was full. He could never get a seat. And he was thinking, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, if I could just book a seat on my app, that would be fantastic. And then from there, the jump to say, well, if, if I've already booked a seat on my app and I know, you know, the system knows where I am and where I'm going to, let's make the system more dynamic and allow these vans to follow routes that aren't fixed in advance, uh, I think that idea you know, that for him, that was sort of the next obvious step. And he called me, and as he was explaining, you know, we've got this sort of relationship, as he was starting to explain what he was thinking, if I, I sort of felt like, uh, oh, yeah, of course, I get it, and it's, you know, it's brilliant. And, and that was that moment that uh, I think we decided to do it. Got it, got it. So what ended up being the uh, business model behind Via? So the business model, you know, the, I'd say the, the product is very uh, simple in some sense. It's a, it's something between a private car and the convenience and, and flexibility and sort of the, the, the very personally tailored service, if you will, the, that you have when you're driving your own car uh, on one end to, to the bus uh, on the other end where uh, it's sort of certainly not tailored to an individual. It's a large vehicle that has follows fixed routes, fixed schedules, makes makes a lot of stops that don't really have a lot to do with you. And if you're not 
flowing that route isn't super useful. Uh, we, we came up with a system that's sort of right in the middle, one might say, where we're using these mid-sized vehicles. We can also use smaller vehicles all the way from regular sedans to minivans and vans. And those, those vehicles, you allow, we allow you to book a seat. And, um, and you know, so it's sort of, if you think about it as a, almost like a marketplace for seats, we connect you as a passenger with a seat. And once you book a seat, we match you with one of these uh, vehicles that can best serve you and, and basically aggregate you with other passengers who are headed in the same direction. And the, the vans, their routes are determined in real time dynamically based on where people are requesting rides. Got it. Got it. And, and you were talking about Orin, right? So Orin, your co-founder. So you guys both have kind of like the engineering techie background. So as you were, as you were pointing to this, I was just like thinking like, wow. So, so you guys have similar backgrounds. So how, first and foremost, how did you, how did you guys decide to uh, divide responsibilities? And then also, I mean, you, you seem to have been the one that took the reins on the business side. So going from the engineering side to the business side, I'm sure that was also a shift for you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think one of the uh, bits of feedback we got early on is that as, as founders, you want to find someone who really complements your skills. So if you have engineering skills, it's great to find a business person or and vice versa. Um, and that, you know, Oren's and my background were, were too similar. We both had this, uh, you know, we're both part of this same program in the, in the military, Talpiot, and we, we both spent all this time in the Air Force. And then uh, Oren uh, did it, his PhD. And I did my PhD and uh, I had some experience at Dishaw. Oren spent a couple of years at McKinsey, so he had some McKinsey experience. But generally that we were too similar and that, you know, that wasn't the right founding team in some sense. And I think that, that may be fair feedback. It's hard for me to say. I think what's much more important in a sense between founders is that you have a common understanding and that you get along really well and that you can, you work together well and that, that you are um, you know just kind of compatible in that way, that you're going to be successful together solving really hard problems because you're going to run into a lot of really hard problems. And that's one of the great things you know that I think uh, Warren and I have is we, we, we're great friends. We also know that we can work together very well because we've worked together in the Air Force for four years and we, and we built complex technology very well and faced lots of challenges and, and you know, hopefully overcame them uh, together. And so I, I think that that um, connection that, that we have, that ability to work together very effectively, that was really the most important piece for us uh, in this understanding. And, uh, you know, when it came to dividing the responsibilities, I, I think um, we could have gone either way. I think, you know, and in fact, a lot of times we make, uh, like I say, almost always, we make all of the key business decisions together. We, Warren's based in Tel Aviv, I'm based in New York, but we were, were on the phone with each other uh, certainly every day, often for, you know, for uh, potentially hours uh, on any given day, talking through challenges, thinking about things together. Uh, we, we, you know, we raise all of the funding together. We make all the big business decisions together. So it's not, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we have a division responsibility based on the fact that we decided to build the technology team in Tel Aviv and Oren was there. So he, he's running the, the tech team and the algorithms. And I'm in New York, which is where we decided to launch the business initially, launch the service. So I took uh, some you know, responsibility for overseeing the day-to-day of the service and, and the operations, but it's really a partnership. Got it. And, and obviously, I mean, the, um, you know, going, uh, be, being in New York, especially, I mean, it's very uh, commercial, very business uh, oriented. So 
how was that transition for you? Yeah, I think I, I, I would say that while certainly the, the, the work I had been doing up until then was, was much more technical and sort of really uh, about technology, very technology focused in my day to day. The, the way I'd always thought about it was that I, I was a product person. Um, and, and I think that's maybe if I were to think about what is the key skill that a founding team needs, it's, it's really that, that product uh, capability or that, that sort of product intuition. And it has to be a product that you're very passionate about and that you, you, you really believe in and want to build because otherwise I, I think it's difficult to be successful at it. But if you have that passion and, and that sort of those those product instincts, and I think that's that's where you can be successful. And I, I would say that that's what really characterizes a lot of my work is always to really think about the product and the system. And um, you know, the, the the business piece, I think you can you can learn, you can read a lot about. We did when we were first thinking about Via. We went and talked to probably a dozen, if not several dozen, experts in the transportation business, and and try to understand how they structured their business and, and, you know, what, what the costs were. And, and, and obviously there's a lot of regulation and what the business challenges were. Um, and I think you, I think you can learn that stuff, uh, if you, if you take the time. Got it. And what were some of those early days like uh, there? I mean, how, how, how was it, Daniel? You know, it was, it was ex exciting and exhausting all at the same time, I would say, uh, <laughs> right. uh You know, you're trying. You you have very limited resources. Obviously, you know, we started out. Um, you know, quite soon after we came up with the idea, I went to my uh, my my colleagues and my my boss at D Shaw Research, and I, I said, "Listen, I, I want to try to pursue uh, this idea with my with my good friend Oren, and I just want to let you know I'm not leaving right away, but I, I'll be spending sort of weekends working on this, and uh, I wanted to give them a lot of notice. Uh, and so, for, for then for six months or so, uh, Oren, I really tried to to prove out, uh, since this was early 2012, the first half of 2012 until June 2012, when I, I left DHR Research and actually formally, we formally launched the, the company. And those first six months uh, were, were really challenging because I essentially had two jobs during the week. I was working in DHR Research and as, as did Orr. And then on the weekends, we were uh, really trying to get this off the ground. And, and we hired a couple of friends uh, to start to build some of the original, kind of the initial algorithms. And the, we built a, a really neat simulation of how this would work, uh, on top of which um, actually sat that, that, that initial version of the algorithm. Uh, we started talking to, as I mentioned, a lot of transportation experts. Uh, I spent a lot of time, we, we figured we, if we were to launch the service initially, Uh, one area that was at the time poorly served by public transportation in New York was the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So I spent uh, a lot of time in the Upper East Side of Manhattan um, accosting uh, random strangers, asking them if they would, you know, kind of running through a survey, trying to understand if they would be interested in using a system like this and what features they would, you know, they would expect or would like it to to provide. So we did a, quite a bit of market survey. I think we talked to a few hundred people uh, to do a bit of a market survey. And we tried to raise a little money. You know, I think one of the things that having that that those jobs that were pretty good, we we were we had some risk aversion to simply jumping uh, without any any indication from the from the fundraising market from the financing market about whether we could raise money for this. And so by the time we had kind of launched the company formally, we had nearly a million dollars, I would say, in, in commitments from early early backers. Uh, and we assumed that only about half of them would actually give us the money. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, and it turned out that that was close. In the end, uh, we ended up getting about $700,000 out of the the million that, that we thought we had uh, after leaving any kind of launching the company. Pretty cool. And we'll talk about financing in, in just a bit, but, but <clears throat> Daniel, here the um, marketplaces are quite a pain. I mean, I, I've been doing marketplaces as well for, for about 10 years now. And and I guess like in, in your guys' experience, like really building a marketplace, I mean, it's like launching two companies at the same time. In your, in your guys' case, you had the people that were looking for the rights and then also the people offering the rights, right? So, so how did you guys get this kind of like chicken and the egg or supply demand type of thing in, in motion? Yeah, you know, I'm really happy to hear, Alejandro, that you also found it difficult. I thought we were the only ones who were finding it difficult to launch a marketplace. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, it's really, it's really challenging. And, and you know, it's, um, it's a business, so launching a two-sided marketplace, as you described, right, there's this chicken and the egg, you need the supply, you need the demand. Um, and if you have too much or too little of either, you can really get stuck. And it's, it's a business that's, that's very, um, susceptible to sort of intense swings in, 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 in almost in your mood, right? One day you've got a ton of demand and you're super stressed about not having, in our case, having enough drivers on the platform. The next day, all these drivers show up and no one is booking rides and, and you're super stressed about having too many drivers who will not come back. So they're not, you know, they're not getting any work. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a real challenge. And it, I think one of the biggest challenges is to almost maintain a, a a level-headedness or an evenness throughout that and recognize that there are just going to be periods where you have to focus on the supply side and there are periods where you have to focus on the demand side. And it's just to be expected. And just because you're focusing on the supply side right now uh, doesn't mean you're, you know, tomorrow you won't have demand side problems. Um, so I think that's one piece. The, the other piece is our marketplace, uh, you know, the product we launched, fortunately for us, had just a, a tremendous response from from riders, from passengers. And um, most of the time where we were having to kind of play catch up is on the supply side. So I, I think that I, I don't, I, you know, that's the only marketplace we've built. So we don't have experience with other marketplaces, but I would say that that, that helped a little bit. Most days we knew where our priority sort of lay. And that was with just trying to convince as many drivers as we could to come on our platform and, and provide this service. And this wasn't an easy problem because, you know, we were trying to take um, essentially drivers of high-end uh, luxury limousines. In particular, uh, you know, we were trying to use larger vehicles. And at the time in New York, there weren't really any vans that we could leverage, or there were very few. So we went after uh, these high-end uh, SUVs, these uh, Suburbans and Escalades, and, and you know the, the way we got there was we were walking around the or and I or was visiting one day we were walking around the streets of Manhattan feeling quite quite depressed because we we were trying to get all these vans to come and join our platform uh, right before we launched and um, you know there were very few of them and the drivers who were willing to come they were going to charge kind of really high uh, fares that were never going to work for a mass transit service like we were trying to build and then Oren yeah I think sometimes the benefit of not you know, being a bit of an outsider, uh, you know, looked at me and said, what, what, what is that car? You know, I see a lot of it. It's, it's everywhere and it's a big car. And he was pointing at a, at a Suburban and a Chevy Suburban. And I said, well, you know, that that's the, probably the most luxurious limousine that you could find in New York. It's sort of, it's become kind of the, the go-to instead of the stretch limo. People use these Suburbans with tinted windows and they're very, very expensive. And he said, well, why can't we use those? And I said, well, you, I don't know if you can take the most expensive limo and make the, the guys driving it sort of effectively a bus driver. I, you know, I'm not sure that will work. And, and he said, well, let's try. So you know, we went and talked to a bunch of these, uh, 
suburban drivers and 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 we got a few of them initially to join the platform and we basically converted them you know the most expensive limousine into a bus which was kind of an interesting so it was always a struggle to get enough of these guys on our platform right and and what, what how was it like uh, as well because not only you have this uh, marketplace thing but you guys were also dealing with the challenge of 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 being in a you know kind of like in a regulated or or a space that has a lot of attention from from regulators. So what was what was that experience for you guys? Yeah, you know we took so I, I think we on the one hand we benefited from the fact that Uber had already launched their service in New York, so they they were not doing anything like what we were doing you know planning to do, which was shared rides. Uh, they were doing you know private rides at that time. It was mostly high end uh, kind of you know uh, Uber Black service, um, but the advantage we had was that they had essentially created an opportunity uh, or, or, or a way to run a service using an app uh, and and these this class of four hire vehicles in New York. So there was a, there was a regulatory solution, and what we needed to do was to just make sure that that regulatory uh, avenue would also allow us to dispatch shared rides, so so that it would be okay for that driver from a regulatory perspective to pick up multiple passengers um, and. You know, we we took an an approach which has has been really key as part of the DNA of VI, I would say, and has been really key to our business from the very beginning. That we were going to be very collaborative with uh, with the city and with regulators, and uh, and you know, we went to talk to them and said, listen, we're planning to use sort of this regulatory framework that that limos had used in New York for 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 decades, and um, limos and black cars and liveries, and and now Uber was sort of extending through the app, and we would like to do the same, but we would like to do something completely new. We'd actually like to dispatch. Uh, shared rides have multiple passengers in each vehicle. Would that work? And, and we, we, you know, we basically got the okay to do that within the the statute. The way that the regulations were written, it was clear that that was, that, you know, that you could do that. I don't think the regulations ever contemplated that, but just by chance, by by luck, perhaps the way they were written, uh, it was it was legal to provide these shared rides. And so we talked to the Taxi and Limousine Commission in New York. We we sort of uh, started building a relationship with them and. And we effectively had, uh, you know, their sort of a, a approval in a sense to to launch, or, or their 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 comments that that you know they didn't we didn't we didn't need any special dispensation. We could just go do it, and uh, that that approach of of working together with cities, uh, together with regulators, or partnering with them, um, has been very uh, very beneficial for us, and and I think is what has allowed our, our business to evolve. Um, which was, you know, you know, to be honest, was kind of the intention from the beginning to evolve also into uh, to have a, a piece of the business that's very important to us these days, where we we can leverage our technology, our software, our operational expertise, not only to run our own marketplace, but also to help cities improve their their public transportation system. So I think having that brand and having that success of cooperating initially in New York, then in Chicago, then Washington D.C with the regulators and with the municipality, uh, it kind of created the foundation that we could then build on to, you know, these days we have uh, nearly 70 partners uh, all over the world, different cities, public transit authorities, and so forth, who who we work with very closely to run public transit. And, and the business, you guys started in 2012. So obviously it's um, the other the other ride-sharing companies, they were added since like 2009, and obviously you have the, the other established uh, companies that are more on the offline type of environment. But I guess, you know, and, and there's nothing, you know, against this because, look, Google was the 88th before, you know, coming to market, and look at them today, right? So I guess what kind of challenges did you guys encounter, like, 
not having, let's say, that first mover type of advantage? Yeah, so I, I, I think that's a great question. So on the one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, Uber and Get, uh, the time was Get Taxi in Israel. Uh, Lyft had not launched yet by, you know, by the time we were sort of coming up with the idea. But I, I think they, they launched uh, uh, sort of before we launched our service in New York. So on the one hand, we had all these what I would call maybe ride hailing companies that had already been been operating for uh, maybe a couple of years. Um but where where I think we were really innovative and 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 we were first uh, was in this concept of dynamic on demand shared rides and um, you know the, the the challenge we had was actually interesting it was a little bit of a semantic challenge the the term ride sharing had been co opted in a sense by by Lyft and and by UberX and so forth saying that you know you were sharing a ride when in fact that the sharing was happening between the driver and the passenger and so this term and and, and that had created a lot of regulatory uh, I would say conflict, uh, because this idea of using uh, citizen drivers, if you will, peer-to-peer drivers, folks who are bringing their own car and then picking up passengers, so that that sharing again was happening between the driver and the passenger, it was referred to as ride sharing. Uh, that was a regulatory uh, innovation, if you will, and, and a lot of cities and regulators were were opposed to it. And so, if we were to call what we were doing ride sharing, which we thought was the right term, we were worried that it would be misunderstood, and so. I think we had a challenge when it came to the term, but actually, you know, what we were doing, which, which is providing these dynamic shared rides, we were, we were, which we launched in New York in 2013, we were very much the first to do that. Today, there are others, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft have their shared services and so forth. But uh, we, we, for a couple of years, we were probably running our service, our service uh, as I think the only ones in the world really doing that, and 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 that gave us an opportunity uh, in New York to to achieve some real scale. And build build a real brand around that. So we, we sort of had we didn't have a first mover advantage on the on the kind of the whole idea of using an app to book a ride for sure. Uh, we we were following quite a number of other players. But when it came to shared rides, I think we we had this first mover advantage that was very very important uh, in fundraising and in uh, kind of building the brand. Got it. So let's talk about fundraising because for a marketplace to follow up on that, I mean it it to get the network effects to turn in the right direction. You need you need liquidity in the marketplace, and in order to have that, you need money to finance it. So, how much capital have you guys uh, raised to date? Yeah, so you know we we've raised uh, at this point about four hundred fifty million dollars um, at, at for Via. It's it's really <laughs> it's really amazing to think about it. You know, if you told me in two thousand twelve that we would raise four hundred fifty million dollars, first of all, I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, uh, a couple of our investors told told us you're going to have to raise, you know, a hundred or two hundred million, and, and you've never raised any money before, so yeah. we're not sure you're going to be able to, and so you know, maybe we're not going to invest because you don't have a track record of, of raising any money. Um, I mean, that was definitely some feedback we got. So you know, four hundred fifty million dollars at the at the time would have seemed like a huge fortune. The the funny thing is that if you look at what some of the other players have raised, um, whether it's DD in China, Grab, Uber, and so forth, uh, it, it feels like a, just a, a tiny amount of money, which is, uh, you know, frankly ridiculous. And and so, yes, fundraising has, has always been, if you're going to build a marketplace like this, as you say, you need liquidity, that requires a, a big investment until you get to the right scale where you can start to see the, a return from that investment. And, um, and it required a huge amount of fundraising and, and, and a huge effort. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I saw I saw that you guys have a 
really interesting investors. So you have Pitango, you have Daimler, you have Capor Capital, you have 83 North, Hearst Ventures, just to name a few. So how did you meet all, all of these people? Yeah, initially, you know, initially, and I think actually maybe uh, throughout this time, you, you, you're you most likely to be successful with investor who's investors who you either know personally or have a sort of a warm introduction to. Um, and so almost all of these investors that you mentioned, we we either initially knew that our first investors we sort of knew personally um, and then were introduced to, to um, these, these later stage investors through either existing investors or other folks that we knew. So that was sort of one class. The, the other, uh, so Hearst Ventures, for example, just as one example, and there, and there are actually quite a few other examples. Uh, we had quite a lot of people once we started the service in New York, and you know we were fortunate to be running the service not only in New York, but in Manhattan and in the Upper East Side and Midtown Manhattan. That was kind of where we initially started. And then obviously throughout Manhattan, where there, there are a lot of investors. And um, they started using our service, which was kind of you know not super expected. We thought, well, our service is very low cost. We were providing these rides at $5, sometimes less throughout Manhattan. Uh, this would really appeal to folks who are very cost conscious. But it turned out that actually um, we, we were, you know, we were popular with sort of with everyone. And uh, so a lot of investors started, uh, you know, potential investors started taking the service, folks who were investors, VCs, uh, from Hearst Ventures uh, and, and others, uh, private investors, and and then reaching out to us and saying, "Hey, can we can we talk? You know, we're using your service. We love it. We we started out. We were the only person in the car, but then now the cars are full. It feels like maybe this is model is working. Uh, you know, can can we can we chat? And we we actually got quite a lot of investment from users, which was which was really fun. You know, that's I think that's the best validation. Well, one one growth hack that that you guys did that I thought it was really interesting. I mean. I see the logo of Via. I mean, I don't know how many times a day. I got to blame you for that. Because <laughs> I'm sorry. Like the, logo, the, logo, the logo is just so big. It feels like it's punching you in the face every time you see it. Oh, that's and it's not... just, it's, it, No, but I mean, in a good way. I mean, you guys did a really, uh, a really, really great job on that. But, you know, I'm just saying that it was, that, that was just like genius. I mean, very similar to kind of like the Yelp strategy. So putting the sticker on the on the uh, window and stuff like that. I mean, it was just remarkable that that growth hack is strategy. Thanks. And in that, you know, that was absolutely part of the strategy was to just get that because when you think about what, when VIA is useful to you, I mean, it can be useful for any, any sort of transportation around the city, obviously, just like any other form of public transportation. But the most important use case in some sense is your daily whether it's commute or, um, you know, if you're going to school or, or, you know, whatever it is that you are doing, you know, once, twice uh, a day, that sort of use case and that repeat use is, is really a core part of our business. And so getting that logo in front of you all the time so that you are kind of constantly reminded, oh, I can use VIA. And then, then hopefully that tying back to this routine daily use, um, you know, was, was really a key part of what we were doing. Got it. And in terms of uh, metrics, where are you guys at in terms of uh, rides and, and all of this? Yeah. So, you know, today uh, the, the business has really uh, evolved. And in some sense, it's come back full circle because when we first had the idea, we thought, oh, you know, we're going to build the software. We are we are engineers. Um, this is a really interesting, complex mathematical problem. If we can solve it well, we can create a very useful technology that we can provide to cities, to transit agencies, to run their public transportation system. We really thought of VIA as a dynamic bus system. Um, 
in 2012 and 2013, unfortunately, no one wanted to talk to us. You know, no city was uh, was taking us particularly seriously. And certainly the MTA in New York, you know, we couldn't even get a meeting. And so we we decided to launch our own service. And uh, and so we launched it in Manhattan and, and then expanded it. And when we kind of came back uh, around in, in 2017, after launching in New York, Chicago, D.C., and really, really growing it, we felt that we had you know, we had collected enough data and we had enough proof points to demonstrate that this was really working. And, and the data just kind of was, was a crucial piece that I'm not sure we fully appreciated in the beginning because that feeds back into the algorithm and has really driven the, the system to be dramatically improved versus the, the original version that we built. So maybe, maybe to be fair, those cities and transit agencies that didn't really want to talk to us in 2013 were, were actually pretty smart because I think the system we had then it wasn't really good enough. Uh, but as we collected this, the, the data over the years, we, we were able to build something that we felt really worked very well and achieved a high level of efficiency and started to really function as, as a mass transit system. And so we started approaching uh, different cities around the world saying, hey, would you like to use this in, in 2017, a couple of years ago? And uh, it took a while. You know, it took a while to convince people. And I think there are a lot of other macro trends happening, including um, – competition that public transit agencies are feeling from ride-hailing companies. Um, They're seeing declining ridership on their bus systems. And then a lot of funding challenges uh, that that cities all over the world are really feeling, and and, and therefore a need to make their their public services more efficient. And while after sort of quite significant efforts 2017, we really ended up uh, that year with, with very few partners. We probably only had signed up four different cities our service. 2018, we really saw, last year, we just saw a massive uh, growth as we hit an inflection point. And we finished the year with with nearly 50 different partners. Uh, we're continuing to sign up uh, cities and, and transit agencies and, and now corporate partners for corporate shuttles, university campuses at a very, very high rate. And so today we, we have uh, nearly 70 cities in which we operate, cities or corporate, again, uh, corporate campuses, college campuses, in which we we either operate or are launching very, very shortly, including uh, four additional cities in which we run our own consumer marketplace in, in Europe, in London, in Amsterdam, Berlin, and in, in Milton Keynes, in addition to New York, Chicago, and D.C. And um, together, you know, we are completing, let's say, well over two million rides a month at this point um, and, uh, and, and are seeing very rapid growth across sort of all of these, all of these metrics. Nice, nice. So, where do you see the on-demand transit heading? I, I think, to me, uh, on-demand. So, on-demand transit, which I, I define as you know different from on-demand taxis, uh, where you're booking a car. So, when you think about the market for on-demand mass transportation, where you're booking a seat and the vehicle that you're in is a little bit larger than your standard car, and it's shared by multiple passengers, and it's you're really trying to build a dynamic bus that complements the existing public transportation system, whether it's the subway, the tram, the, the light rail, and, and the high-capacity bus routes, and, and perhaps replaces the underperforming, low-utilized bus routes. I think that that mode of transit, this on-demand shuttle service, if you will, has the potential to become a major mode of transportation in every city in the world. In fact, it you know if you were to ask me, other than the subway, I believe it has a, a really good likelihood of becoming the major way in which people get around cities because it hits this this sweet spot. Uh, you know, there's this trade-off of convenience and cost between 
know, the convenience in the private car and the cost of the sort of the subsidized public transportation, the bus, that that makes it extremely interesting if you can get it to scale. And, that, and that's what we're starting to see in some of those cities where we're operating at scale, where there's a real opportunity to create a, a, a very high penetration service. Got it. Got it. So as I had always said to, towards the end of 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 my time with founders, um, you know, really, really during this this interviews, I always, I always typically ask the the same question towards the end, and, and that is, if you could go to the past and give yourself advice before launching, let's say your first business, in, in this case, let's say Via, what would that advice be and why? Just one piece of advice. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great question. I, I am, uh, you know, I, I I think with the caveat that. You know, I, I have an N of one, right? This is my first startup. Um, I think the one thing I would have done differently and, and the one piece of advice I would give to founders is to move really quickly. Uh, you know, I think that we had this idea and then we took about six, Orin and I, and we took about six months to, if not longer, uh, to really prove to ourselves that it was a great idea in some sense, prove to ourselves that we could, you know, if we left our jobs and launched into it full time, then we would have some financial backing by, by kind of lining up investors, uh, really work through the business case. We, I think, wasted a lot of time, frankly, writing a very detailed business plan and, and, and business model, collecting a lot of data. And, you know, one might say it's a very prudent approach because at the end of the, those, those months, you know, we, we had a, a really clear um, indication and case that, that this, this was viable. This was a viable idea. But, you know, we knew intuitively that it was a great idea, that we were passionate about it, that we wanted to do it. And I think if we had just jumped into it instead of trying to stick to our jobs during the week and only work on this on the weekend, we could have gained six months um, or so. And those six months are super valuable. I, I think that, you know, you're trying to reduce your risk in a sense by, by doing all this due diligence and proof of concept. But and, and you are reducing your risk in those dimensions. But what you don't realize as a founder is that you are creating substantially, you know, you're creating other risk, which may be substantially greater by delaying. And while delaying, others are, you know, there are probably others who have your same idea and they're moving. Um, and so I think this sort of trade-off of risk between kind of de-risking certain aspects of the of the of the project or of the startup by by working through, um, you know, some of these, these questions, but losing time, I think in that trade-off time is the most valuable resource you have when you're starting and you should move very quickly. So my advice is always, or my question, you know, is why haven't you already launched? What, what's stopping you from launching tomorrow? Is it, is it, can you really not just start tomorrow, this tomorrow? Why haven't you, why haven't you done it yet? And, uh, that's what I would say to founders. I love it. I love it. So, Daniel, what is the best way for the folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can always email me. I'm uh, daniel at ridewithvia.com. Uh, I, I, I will do my best to answer, I promise. <laughs> Amazing. That's kind of dangerous. But anyhow, Daniel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.